We're all set here in the studios with a fine audience full of eager boys and girls, a batch of real problems that you sent in, and our panel of typical teenagers. So, without any further ado, I'd like to have you meet your panel. And as usual, they're going to introduce themselves. E.J. Kilday, 17 years old, high school senior. Vanda Thompson, 17 years old, high school senior. Pete Wagner, 17 years old. This clip's from an old radio show that aired in the 1940s called Mind Your Manners. The show had two goals. One of them was to quiz children on the rules of etiquette, and can you imagine? And the other was to have a panel of older kids, mostly high school students, who gave advice to younger kids who'd write into them. Here's one of those questions. Last week, I invited a girl I have liked for a long time to my senior reception. Now I have learned that she has asked another boy to a very important affair the day after my reception. If she doesn't care enough for me to ask me to that event, why did she accept my invitation? Should I ask her for an explanation, or do you think I should retract the invitation to my reception? I do not want to be a sucker. All right, here's a boy who doesn't want to be a sucker. What about it, Fred Smith? You think he is? No, I don't think he's a sucker, and I don't think that she owes him any explanation whatsoever, because she's not obligated to him in any way. Fine. Now, what do you think about it, Betty Ann? Well, he ought to be glad that she accepted his invitation to go to the dance and just let it go at that. After all, as Fred says, she's under no obligation to him. They aren't going steady or anything like that. Vanda? Well, it's none of his business who, who she's going out with the following night. She's not tied down with any way whatsoever. Asking for and giving advice is such an everyday feature of our lives that it's pretty easy to ignore. But I think once we reflect on it a bit, we'll start to see that some of the interesting philosophical questions don't really have obvious answers. What makes advice good? Does good advice just give us the best means to our ends, whatever they happen to be? Or does it also involve an aspect of moral guidance? What sort of moral responsibility do advisors have? In today's episode, we'll dig into these and other questions, and I hope show that it's all a bit more complicated than you might think. So if that sounds appealing to you, I'd advise you to stay tuned. This is Open Questions, a podcast about philosophy. I'm Jeremy Davis. And I'm Eric Matheson. I talked with Eric Weiland, who's published a lot on advice. I'm Eric Weiland, and I'm an associate professor in the philosophy department at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. I think there is an important distinction between advice and testimony that people aren't always clear about. So I just want to interject and say that there's an even more important distinction we have to make first, and that's between the two Erics. So we've got Eric, co-host of the show. Hello. And Eric Weiland, interviewee and our philosopher writing on advice. So normally I'd call him by his first name, since that's how we choose to do things around here. But today for this episode, I'm going to call him Wyland so that we don't get confused. So we've got Eric, co-host of the show, and Wyland, our interviewee. Okay, on to the philosophical distinction. Testimony is about facts, or rather it's about how things are. Uh, Some people might say it's about propositions. So uh, if I give you some testimony, I'm, I'm telling you how things are or were. So, for example, if you say you're thinking about buying a car, and I tell you about the details of all the cars that have won various safety awards over the past few years, I'm just giving you testimony. But advice, Wyland says, is something different. Advice is about what to do. So, uh, if I advise you, that means I advise you to do something. Um, If I give you testimony, uh, I'm inviting you to believe something. So, Uh, Maybe the easiest way to think about the difference between advice and testimony is to think about what the difference is between taking advice and taking testimony. If you take testimony, you believe something that you otherwise wouldn't have believed. And if you 
take advice, you do something that you otherwise wouldn't have done. So putting it roughly, testimony concerns our beliefs or how things are, while advice concerns our actions or what we should do. But advice isn't the only kind of speech that's about our actions or about what to do. There's, there's commands and orders on the one hand, and then there are things like requests, or uh, you can just suggest to someone to do something, uh, which seems a little bit weaker than advice. And I don't think these lines are super sharp, um, but there are some distinctions to be drawn between these various kinds of ways of getting another person to do something. The point here is that a lot of what we typically call advice is probably better categorized as one of these related things. So when a professor gives her students advice for writing their essays, it probably makes more sense to label this a set of loose commands. Okay, so that's the first important distinction. Advice is different from commands and different from testimony. Let's turn to a second distinction between taking advice and trusting advice. So like sometimes when we seek advice from other people, we already have a pretty good idea of what to do. We're just seeking for some confirmation or maybe we just want like some extra motivation. We want encouragement to do the thing that we already think is the thing to do. So take an example where I'm trying to decide what to order at a restaurant. So suppose you say to me, Jeremy, I'm thinking about ordering the fish. You know, have you had it? What do you recommend? And you might say, oh, yeah, I, I advise you to I advise you to order the fish. This certainly seems like an instance of advice, right? And we probably naturally want to call it that. You needed guidance about what to do, and I advised you about what to do. But it seems like a sort of weak form of advice, mostly because I've already come pretty close to making up my mind about what to do, and now I'm just seeking you out to confirm that I'm doing the right thing. But if I come to you and say, I have no idea what to order, everything looks equally good, um, I'm at a total loss, and then you advise me, oh, I'd really advise you to order the fish, <laughs> then... Um, then I think if I order the fish, I am, tr I am trusting you in a way that I wouldn't have otherwise. The difference between this case and the previous case, where I just needed confirmation, is that in this case, I am genuinely unsure about what to do. Maybe the menu has too many good options. Or maybe you're a chef, or I just really trust your expertise. In this case, I'm trusting you in a way that I wasn't before. Wyland puts it this way. Trusting is when you're at a loss about what to do. Um, or at least there are at least, at least two options, and you're at a loss about how to choose between them. And if you rely on somebody else's advice in order to do one of the two or multiple options, that sounds more like trusting to me. And I think that's more philosophically interesting. So I have this view. I used to work at a cafe. And it drove me crazy whenever anyone would ask, oh, what's good here, what do you recommend, or something like that. It just never seemed like a good way of actually getting value or useful information. So you know, suppose somebody here says, well, do you like the pad thai? I would say, yeah, I think it's pretty good. But I have no way of knowing whether you like the pad thai. And if you know, or if you have no idea about what your tastes are for Thai food, then it's not gonna be really that helpful to know. Well. Something like, what's the most popular dish here, or what do people tend to like the best? That might be useful information, but just, do you like this, or do you recommend this, um, from kind of a personal point of view? It just seems to me a bad way of getting to have a good meal. And the other thing that bothers me about it is that if somebody says, you know, at the cafe, well, which muffin do you recommend? And suppose I tell them, truthfully, which muffin I think is best? 
And this would happen where people would say, oh, I don't like this muffin. Now, it seems like it's on me. It seems like it's my fault now that you chose this muffin and that you didn't end up liking it. But of course, you should have known that that was just the, the hazard of ordering the muffin that I like in the first place. So totally. If somebody says, recommend a muffin to me, and then you recommend what is, by all accounts, like a perfectly reasonable muffin to order, and they don't like it, that's totally on them. That's the people actually did that. People actually complained about that. That's ridiculous. No, but it seems like people would say things like, "You told me this muffin was good, and it's not good." Yeah. <laughs> no, but it does seem like if somebody says, "You know, hey, what you know, what do you recommend here?" I'm always when I when I say things like that, I'm sort of asking for like them to tell me things to avoid. So if someone says like, if I say like, I'm thinking of ordering like the, I don't know the salmon, you know, salmon roll, and they're like, "Oh, I wouldn't do that." Like, I, I think that's, like, pretty strong reason to, to avoid it. But if they say, like, oh, go for this, like, maybe they're trying to upsell me or maybe they, like, they really like it and I won't or whatever. But it's partly because I'm just, like, I don't care. Like, I just want somebody to make that choice for me. But if they tell me not to do something, it seems like that's pretty decisive. So, like, if somebody, if, like, you were at a rest, really high-end restaurant and some big chef guy walks out and, like, looks you dead in the eye and says, don't order the salmon, I feel like you have really strong reason to just, like... Yeah, I'm not going to order the salmon. The guy looked at me, and I feel like that would be pretty uh, that would be pretty decisive for me. But if he said, comes out and does the same thing, goes like, order the salmon, I would I probably still wouldn't order the salmon. How do we know when we should trust a piece of advice? Seems like in most cases, whether or not we should trust a piece of advice really has to do with whether or not we can or should trust the person giving it. So then the question is really, how do we know we can trust them? Let's hear a quick pitch from someone who does this for a living. What I think I bring to the table. This, by the way, is Ellie, an advice columnist for the Toronto Star, whose syndicated advice column appears in newspapers all across North America. And what I think is important is certainly a certain amount of varied life experience. And um, a, a sense of compassion and understanding of what people go through and a caring about it when they're having difficulties. Uh, and a willingness, a willingness to, to try and cast aside any even hidden prejudices that you might have against certain behaviors and try to see the problem that's presented from the person's point of view. So Ellie thinks that in her job, giving good advice involves varied life experience, compassion, and an unbiased perspective. The second and third points will come up in another form later, but let's start here with the first of those, life experience. Weiland agrees that life experience is relevant, though he emphasizes that it's in some sense relative to the particular situation. I think it makes sense to give extra weight to advisors who have undergone life experiences that we believe or suspect would put people in touch with values that are at stake in the deliberative situation that we ourselves face. Now, if we can go briefly into the weeds for a second, I think it's useful to introduce a slight bit of terminology here. 
Okay, so remember that kid we heard from earlier on, the one who doesn't want to be a sucker. Should I ask her for an explanation, or do you think I should retract the invitation to my reception? Uh, I do not want to be a sucker. All right, here's a boy who doesn't want to be a sucker. What about it, Fred Smith? You think he is? I think it's fair to say that the high school kids probably don't have a lot of varied life experience. And yet I don't think it's crazy to think that they're probably capable of giving this boy some pretty good advice. Yeah, there seems to be a particular sort of life experience that they have that makes them good advisors in this situation. Like the fact that they might have recently experienced similar scenarios themselves, or maybe the fact that they are more in tune with the social environment these kids are likely to find themselves in. So it seems like while it might be true in general that things like life experience and compassion are important for giving good advice, surely not all kinds of advice require this. And Weiland calls the properties that pick out who is best suited to give advice in a given context indicator properties. These properties pick out features that make the advisors more likely to have the knowledge that we aim to acquire. So maybe high school student is a relevant indicator property for a young kid who's trying to avoid being a sucker, but it's probably not a relevant indicator property when I'm looking for advice on what kind of retirement plan I should get. The first thing to notice then is that different situations will call for different indicator properties. And when I trust someone else's advice, it can't be the case that I myself possess all the same indicator properties to the same degree that my advisor possesses them. After all, if this were true, I wouldn't really be trusting that person's advice, since they wouldn't be offering me anything I didn't already know myself. It would be like asking for the best dish at a restaurant when I'm the head chef. Think about this point in the context of testimony. It doesn't make sense to say I trust someone's testimony when they tell me facts I already knew myself. So I can't have all the same indicator properties as my advisor. They have to have something I don't have. But also, in order for it to make sense for me to trust that person, I have to be able to know or pick out what indicator properties they do have that are relevant here. In other words, one condition for getting good advice is that I have enough self-knowledge to know what I'm lacking, and a fair bit of knowledge about who might possess that knowledge. But at the same time, I can't have so much knowledge that I'm in possession of all the same relevant information as my advisor. A lot of people aren't sufficiently self-aware to be able to do this all that well. Who are you consulting with consistently so that you're ready on day one? I'm speaking with myself, number one, because I have a very good brain. Wyland says that there are other important qualities a good advisor generally has. If somebody is actually living out ethical ideals that we share, like even when it's difficult to do so, um, they must have a, a, a deep understanding of mm, morality or something like morality. They have a deeper understanding than other people do. Maybe other people, such as myself, need advice because our understanding of my understanding of morality is shallow or you know, as Plato would say, you know, I, I might have a true belief, but I haven't grasped the justification or the account for why this is so. So in addition to the relevant indicator properties, we also tend to look for an advisor who we think has a better grasp of morality than we do. This is especially important when there's a moral dimension to the type of advice we're seeking, like, for example, if the issue concerns where to donate our money or what to do when we find ourselves in a moral dilemma. But just because the person has all the right indicator properties doesn't mean that any advice they give will be worth acting on. Sometimes somebody will tell you something that sounds so crazy that you'll immediately like demote the person who's recommending this to you. If I ask you, you know, should I order the fish or the chicken? And you tell me, um, no, go, go around back and dig out of the dumpster behind the restaurant for your meal. <laughs> I will immediately demote you as a, somebody who's uh, 
advice is worth trusting. So in order to trust advice, it also has to, in some sense, cohere with what we think are among the reasonable or appropriate options. Even though we might be stuck on which option to choose from, we have to know at least what falls within the range of those reasonable options. So here again, we see the relevance of knowledge and self-knowledge. I have to know enough about the situation to know the range of reasonable options, and that requires knowing enough about myself, what I'm likely to do, and so on. One of the really interesting things about advice, then, is that we think of it as something we resort to when we don't have a clue as to what to do, but actually, getting the best advice really requires that we know quite a bit about ourselves, our advisors, our circumstances, and the world. One of the most challenging kinds of advice to give is when you, the advisor, disagree with the standards or perspective of the person you're advising. So, for example, if someone asks you for advice about what to do about their toxic relationship, and you know that what would be best for her to do is leave, that probably won't be very good advice if you also know that she would never leave. Ellie thinks that, in general, she ought to try to give advice that coheres with her advisee's standards. People sometimes ask, why didn't I just tell her to dump the guy and leave him? And the answer is, because she's not going to. Because she loves him. And because she's going to stay and try to make it work. So then I talk to her about what she may have to face. But Wyland thinks that in cases like these, what a good advisor ought to do might be to not advise at all. There's nothing stopping you from saying, like, those are bad standards. If you yourself disagree with the conclusion that they are likely to draw, there's nothing stopping you from saying, but I don't advise you to do that. Wyland's point here isn't focused merely on the practical issue of giving the most useful advice to our advisees. There's also a deeper point here about the responsibility we have as advisors. If you advise somebody to do something and they trust you, there can be a sense in which the two of you have acted together. The two of you, in a sense, form a joint agent that has done something bad. If this idea seems a little strange, just consider how the criminal law takes a similar approach to advice. If somebody orders another person to commit a crime, and, and, the, and then the person like, obeys the order, commits the crime, uh, then the person who merely ordered the crime uh, is treated by the law as um, somebody who, who violated, who committed that very crime. And many legal systems, including the one in the United States, um, treat counsel the same way they treat command. That is, they treat advice the way they say, the same way they treat command. So to put Weiland's point slightly differently, by giving advice, we become in some sense complicit in the result. We're involved. Now, this might only apply within a narrow range of outcomes, like things that could have reasonably been foreseen, but we might still be held morally responsible. That is, they would be justified in blaming or resenting us. And when that audience is bigger, as Ellie's is, that responsibility might be bigger as well. I believe that someone who puts themselves out in the public arena, as I do, and claims that they can give advice and gives advice, has a responsibility not only to the person who wrote you, but to the readers. I think very hard about that every time I answer a column. Every time I write a column, I think about it, with every question. Most of our discussion here, and the most natural way of thinking about advice, is to think of it as instrumentally valuable. 
It's a means for us to realize our particular ends. It's necessary for us to get advice sometimes so that we can succeed at doing what we want or need to do. But there's another way of thinking about advice. So we do rely upon other people instrumentally in that way. Um, But then there's this more radical thought, which I've become increasingly attracted to, which is that um, the good life for human beings is partially constituted by the kind of epistemic dependence relations that testimony and advice are examples of. So that that wouldn't merely be instrumental, right? That would be like part of what it is to have a good life is to uh, rely on one another. So there you have it. Being able to depend on each other for guidance through our lives isn't just a way we use each other in order to achieve our ends. It might also be part of the good life itself. This episode was produced by Jeremy Davis and me, Eric Matheson. Open Questions is a production of the Center for Ethics at the University of Toronto, with music written and performed by Marku Weinman. You can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Send us your thoughts on this episode at openquestionsshow at gmail.com. You can find Ellie's syndicated column online at thestar.com and in newspapers across North America. We'll be back next week. <laughs>